The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Good morning, Springs Church. I want to welcome each and every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ this morning. Let's begin together in prayer. Father, we approach you this morning with gratitude in our hearts. Lord, with thankfulness for all that you've done in our lives and all that you continue to do in our lives and in the world and in your kingdom. Lord Jesus, we pray your blessing upon us this morning. We pray that your spirit would speak to us, would illuminate our hearts, our eyes, and our ears. And God, I ask for the gift of preaching. It's in your powerful spirit and name that we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. The Gospel of Luke begins in song. You might remember from our sermon series last fall that Luke starts in his first two chapters with this outburst of four different songs. Right? We have Zachariah's song. We have Mary's Magnificat. We have the angelic chorus at Jesus' birth. And then we have Simeon's song in Luke chapter 2. Simeon, who has waited his whole life to see the Messiah, to see the anointed one of Israel, and he sees baby Jesus outside the temple who's being circumcised on the eighth day. And Simeon sings, he says, Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And then Acts, Luke's volume two, begins with the grown adult Jesus the crucified and risen and about to be ascended Jesus, telling his apostles, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. These promises this light of revelation to the Gentiles, this witnessing to the very ends of the earth comes to fruition in Acts chapter 10. Comes to fruition in our text this morning. We've already seen the apostles and the way that they have witnessed to Jesus in Jerusalem, at Pentecost and beyond in Judea and Philip going to Samaria and now it begins to touch even the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. In Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of the Italian cohort, as it was called. He was a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed constantly to God. One afternoon, About three o'clock, he had a vision in which he clearly saw an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. He stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? He answered, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. 
Now send men to Joppa for a certain Simon, who is called Peter. So chapter 10 of Acts marks a kind of halfway point in this book. Right? From here on out, we're just going to continue to see the gospel spreading and spreading to the ends of the earth. And it begins here with a Gentile with Cornelius, with the very first Roman that we meet in the book of Acts. And this being the Roman Empire, one of the things we know about the Roman Empire is that it was incredibly militarily powerful. It had a very, very strong military that was feared the world over, that was very, very successful. And in an empire where military reigns supreme, the people who walk around larger than life, who walk around with agency and power and influence and honor, are the military officers. Cornelius. Right? A military officer is somebody who can get things done, somebody who can make or break an emperor, somebody who can snap their fingers and have you flogged or killed, snap their fingers and have your house demolished. And this is who Cornelius is. He is this aspiration of power, but he's also an anomaly. Cornelius is also different, right? We find from Luke that Cornelius is devout. He's a pious man. He cares about the poor. He's philanthropic. He's generous. He's deeply and abidingly prayerful. Cornelius is a military officer, and he is a Gentile. But even though he's a Gentile, he is a man in love with the God of Israel, a man faithful to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so this angel appears to Cornelius and says, look, God has noticed you, he's noticed your righteousness, and he wants you to send messengers to a man named Simon Peter. So Cornelius does just that. Meanwhile, about noon the next day, as these messengers were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while it was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw the heaven opened and something like a large sheet coming down, being lowered to the ground by its four corners. In it were all kinds of four-footed creatures and reptiles and birds of the air. Then he heard a voice saying, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is profane or unclean. The voice said to him again a second time, what God has made clean, you must not call profane. This happened three times and the thing was suddenly taken up to heaven. So Ben wasn't kidding last week when he talked about Acts as a book of continuous conversion where conversion isn't something that just happens at a single moment in time, but it happens over and over again, and it happens over time, continuously. 
And we've labeled this story typically as the conversion of Cornelius, but it is certainly that, but it's absolutely also a conversion of Peter. There's a conversion happening in the life of Peter here. And to really get at it, I think we have to take a look at Israelite restrictions on food, on cleanliness and uncleanliness. We need to go back to Leviticus chapter 11, right? Because this is where these kind of restrictions, these Jewish dietary laws are coming from. Leviticus 11 is where Aaron, at the Lord's request, begins to decipher and distinguish and separate between what is clean, what can be eaten by Israel, and what is unclean. What, what is eaten, what cannot be eaten or even touched. And so we see these species, these orders that are in Peter's vision of this sheet, these animals, reptiles, and birds. We see those very same orders in Leviticus 11, animals, reptiles, and birds. And we see them in Genesis as well. We see the creative ordering of God's love in Genesis 1, who lays out and creates on days five and six animals and reptiles and birds. And in Genesis 7, saved from the flood. And in Genesis 9, returned into the hands of humans, animals, reptiles, and birds. And in this distinguishing, this ordering of creation, we see a reflection of the creative love of God. Genesis 1. We see God creating something separate, something different and distinct to be loved. Right? Because in order for there to be love, there needs to be something other to love. So we see love within God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as lover, beloved, and the love between them. But also in creation, we see God creating something wholly different and distinct, creating the world, the cosmos, humanity. And in this distinction, God's love doesn't erase the distinction between him and the world but it reconciles it, right? Love doesn't erase distinction or difference. Love reconciles what was once distinct. Love brings together. And this is what we see reflected in the creative and loving ordering of Leviticus. We see that the purpose of these Levitical distinctions was always Acts 10. The purpose of Leviticus 11 was always to bring together what had been distinguished. And that purpose is being fulfilled in Peter. Peter, who is now being asked to eat Gentile food, a marker of Gentile existence and difference, Peter is being asked to take that into himself as vital to his own existence. We see the purpose of Leviticus 11 was always to bring together what had once been far, to reconcile it in the love of God. N.T. Wright has a wonderful analogy 
about Leviticus and these commands and their relationship to Acts 10. He, he says, imagine a mother that's standing uh, at a busy street corner and across the street she sees her child who's wanting to cross the road. But it's a busy street, there's traffic whizzing by and so she, she shouts a command, she says, stand still. And the child does and the traffic goes by and the traffic kind of cools down after about a minute and she shouts another command, walk across. And the child comes across. The mother has not contradicted herself. These two commands, their purpose was always to get the child safely across the street. And indeed, that first command to stand still, without it, the child wouldn't have gotten across the street safely. But the purpose of these commands was to eventually get that child across the street. And that's the kind of shift that we see happening in Acts chapter 10. In Acts 10, we see that these laws of cleanliness, this distinguishing and ordering, was always intended to bring together what had once been apart. It was always intended to make Israel holy, separate, set apart, particular, distinct, and through Israel to bless the world through Israel, to take the love of God to the nations in Christ. That's what's happening in Acts chapter 10. All of which is not immediately clear to Peter. Right? Peter, Luke says, was very puzzled by this. He's, he's not quite sure exactly what's going on, and the vision has to happen three times. He's puzzled, but the Spirit speaks to him and says, hey, those messengers, there's some messengers downstairs, you need to go greet them. You know, the Spirit is kind of playing matchmaker here. There's this sort of cosmic spiritual blind date being set up between Peter and Cornelius is trying to get these guys together for what God is doing in the world. And so Peter goes down and he meets and he invites them in he says he invited them in and gave them lodging and the next day he got up and went with them and some of the believers from Joppa accompanied him. The following day they came to Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. On Peter's arrival, Cornelius met him and falling at his feet, worshipped him. But Peter made him get up, saying, Stand up, I'm only a mortal. And as he talked with him, he went in and found that many had assembled. And he said to them, you yourselves know that it is unlawful for a Jew to associate with or to visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone profane or unclean. So Peter takes these words from the Lord, from his vision, and he, he kind of restates them. He says, hey, God has shown me, Cornelius, that I'm not supposed to call anyone profane or unclean. That's a really drastic shift in the life of Peter. That's a really drastic shift, not just because of the Torah, not just because of these Levitical distinctions, but because of something that really drives us emotionally as humans something called disgust. 
right? Disgust is what we experience when we're revolted by something, when we experience, see, hear, smell, or especially taste something that is distasteful or unpleasant. If you haven't seen the, the movie Inside Out, uh, there, it's, a, it's a wonderful, wonderful little movie um, that follows this young girl named Riley, and you kind of get to experience the world through the emotions in her head. And so there's five emotions that are personified um, in her brain. There's joy, sadness, anger, fear, and disgust. And the producers, the creators of the movie, had at least 20 ideas for the emotions that they could have kind of running Riley in her brain. And they they whittled it down eventually to these five core emotions, joy, sadness, anger, fear, and disgust. And disgust is one of those things that really drives us kind of on an unconscious, almost gut level at times. Right? We, We see something or hear something I'm currently the father of a toddler, so I'm really learning a lot about disgust lately. But it, it drives us, and I think unconsciously at times, really. Uh, there's, there's an interesting study that um, studied these students at the University of British Columbia, and they found that they were able to demonstrate that if they showed these students at British Columbia pictures of infection or disease, they increased their fear of immigrants. Right? So they would show them pictures of various dangers, um, you know, something like electrocution or something, but when they showed them pictures of infection, pictures of disease, their fear of the other, of the stranger, of the out-group went up. Disgust is at work in our lives. It's how we know who's clean, who's unclean. It's how we decipher what we should ingest, who we should touch. And so here is Peter in the home of a Gentile. Somebody in the out group. Here's Peter standing in Cornelius' home, a man with a Gentile body, a man who eats Gentile food and lives a Gentile life, and God says through Peter, I shouldn't call anyone profane or unclean. This is, this is a fresh idea for Peter. It's fresh out of the spiritual oven, but it's also been marinating for a while, Right? This has been marinating ever since the day that Peter left everything to follow Jesus Christ. Ever since Peter dropped everything to follow the Messiah who touches the leper, who dines with prostitutes, who's seen with sinners and tax collectors. This is the outworking and outgrowth This is Peter taking to its logical conclusion the love and ministry of Jesus Christ that calls people to follow him. And so Peter asks Cornelius, you know, why am I here? And Cornelius tells about his vision and Peter begins to kind of piece things together. He starts to get a larger, clearer picture of what's going on. 
And so he says, I truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And then Peter begins to preach. Just as he preached at Pentecost in Acts 2, Peter begins to speak again and he tells the story of the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus. It's a pretty good summary of the Gospel of Luke, actually, if you get a chance to read it. But while he's preaching, Luke says that while Peter was still speaking, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astounded that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter said, can anyone withhold the water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ Then they invited him to stay for several days. Ben began our Acts sermon series with a story about Habitat for Humanity. And you might remember he alluded that Habitat for Humanity grew out of this kind of small, intentional Christian community in Georgia. And this intentional Christian community was called Koinonia Farm. And it was founded by a man named Clarence Jordan and his wife and another couple that they lived with. And so they founded this farm in 1942 in Georgia. And they decided to really try and get close to the church in Acts, right? To to hold all their possessions in common. It was a farm, so they tried to live simply. They tried to be good stewards of the land. They practiced nonviolence and... They wanted to commit to seeing everyone as equals, right? To living with brothers and sisters, children of God, as equals. And that might sound pretty mundane or underwhelming for us, but in 1942, Georgia, in Jim Crow Deep South, Georgia, It was a really, really radical, scandalous thing to do. So Koinonia Farm was an interracial community. When they hired workers, seasonal people to help them with the harvest, white or black, they paid them an equal, fair wage. When they came together to fellowship, to eat, to have table fellowship, everyone sat at the same table. Everyone ate together. Everyone communed together. And you better believe that the people in 1940s and 50s Georgia took notice. That these couples at Koinonia Farm were eventually excommunicated from their Southern Baptist church. And that in 1954, after Brown versus Board of Education desegregated the schools, that intensity of this persecution of the Koinonia farm really ramped up quickly. So their roadside produce stand was dynamited, was destroyed. They would be shot at from the highway. They had bullets hitting their houses. 
the Ku Klux Klan held a rally and motorcaded more than 70 cars out to Koinonia Farm to intimidate them into selling and disbanding. And through it all, Koinonia Farm remained a shining city on a hill. Through it all, Koinonia Farm remained a radical picture of the gospel. A radical picture of calling no one clean, unclean, or profane, but calling everyone a child of God. Treating everyone as made in the image of God. A picture of the reconciliation of God's love. You see, in Christ, the other becomes one another. In Christ, what is other becomes one another. The love of God takes all that we are and all our distinctions and all our differences and doesn't erase those things but founds our primary identity in Jesus Christ. The Jesus who is reconciling all things in heaven and on earth in His body, making peace through the blood of His cross. The Spirit of God is on that very mission in the world. The the Spirit of God is, is calling us into that very mission in the world. The mission established by Jesus, the God man who crossed the divide the distinction, the separation in order to bring us together, in order to bring us to Him. In Christ, the other becomes one another. Jesus Christ reconciling us to one another and to God. That's what Peter is beginning to learn in Acts chapter 10. And church, that's what we're beginning to learn today. love reconciles us in our differences so that there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male nor female but that even in our differences we are founded in the body of Jesus Christ that is who we are church let's stand and praise that reconciling God in the name of Jesus Christ